Shut up and sit down. you guys can hear me okay i have a new mic um and we're testing it out tonight and um <clears throat> we've been testing it out during the week uh since i got it uh on various platforms and uh so <clears throat> um we'll see how it goes and let me know if i'm brushing up against anything because the mic's a little different and so i don't want to it's brushing up against my clothes because it's lower my my other mic was a boom mic, so it was in front of my face, and now this one is kind of below my chin a little, and so just if it's, if you hear anything, just let me know in the chat room, because um, I feel like it's rubbing, but it's not rubbing, it's it's me. <laughs> Anyways, it's also got, I have two head, um, headphones now instead of one, so I kind of feel like I'm talking in um, a very small room. Um, by myself, it's 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 very weird. It's a very weird um, situation. So hopefully, it'll get better with time. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I've been running around like a crazy person because I woke up, I slept, I overslept, and I didn't go to bed till like 11 a.m. this morning. And then I meant to get up at seven and did not get up at seven p.m. I know, I know, I don't have a normal sleeping schedule. I have an awkward circadian rhythm. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, <clears throat> and so I was um, running around like crazy, and I haven't eaten. And I made myself hot, and I'm not sure if it's sugar or – and I'm rambling, which is probably an indication that my sugar is a little wonky right now. So if I get a little weird, I'm blaming that. Okay? Okay? Okay. Okay. So tonight we're going to talk about um, character development and casting an original characters. Um, we're going to try this again. This was our topic we were trying to do when our when my headset just went off the rails and I got frustrated and accidentally closed the show by accident, um, which was really sad because we were talking about um, the development of characters, and I thought we had some really good points um, going, and we're having, having a really good conversation, except that it was just all terrible and buzzy. And um, uh, so we're going to um, try it again. I kept the original I'm thinking I might, like, take out cuts from it and play it during the podcast, but I didn't have time to edit it, so it's just um, stuck there. <clears throat> so we'll try to duplicate what we were doing that night, and hopefully um, I'll stop being miserably hot in a second because it's, like, not even hot in my house. Um, <clears throat> it's just me, just me. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, I got Jilly on the phone. She also has a new headset. Uh the same headset. She has the same headset. And uh, we bought them <laughs> independently from each other. <laughs> there you go. But still ended up with the same one. <laughs> yeah, it was strange. She sent so, me a link and, and said, am I muted? No. No, you're not. Can you hear him? Okay. You're good. So she sent I me a link and said, this is, the head, this is the headset I bought. And I clicked on it and said, you purchased this on April 13th. And I went, eh? Oh, this is the headset I bought. 
so it was so kind of um, a little bit strange. Have you looked but at your when little I had remote a little... control? I don't have my remote this control li- tonight. Uh, oh, well, I have mine hooked up to my computer with the USB. Um, the microphone is lit up blue. I didn't notice it last night when we were testing it. But if I click yeah, on it, actually... it turns red, which means it's muted. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's yeah, I'm. Slick. I'm. Hooked, I hooked, that was the nice thing about it is that it, it it has a little adapter so you can go between your computer and your. Um, I have it on my cell phone tonight. Um, I've never dialed into the podcast through a, uh, um, uh, an IP connection, and I didn't want to have a technical glitch tonight that I hadn't worked out ahead of time. So I just took the remote off and plugged it straight into my cell phone, and it's working like a champ. I'll get the link for the headset. I Cost was definitely a, a deciding factor. That did not work oh, out. There it is. Did it pop up anyway? Yeah, it still pops up. The link is broken, but the link still works because it's got my search part in it too. But that link still actually works. Um, it's really great because it was only $23, um, $23.59. And um, it's very comfortable and lightweight. And there is actual genuine noise reduction. Um, for those of you on the podcast are listening, it's uh, the MPOW, M-P-O-W, 071 USB headset. <laughs> and Rogue just ordered it as well. You ordered it before the podcast. It's actually, it's, it's got really good reviews on um, Amazon, and it is a bestseller. So I guess it's popping up first in the, or pretty high up in the search list. And it's just, it's really good so far. It's got a great warranty on it, so I'm I'm not mad. Um, at all, <laughs> and if you're if you're someone who needs um, who uses headphones in multiple locations and you don't want to travel it around, they do sell this particular model in a two pack, and the two pack is forty two dollars. So you save just a little bit of money getting the two pack. Yeah, it's good. Also, it performs well on fake spot because I did check that. I think this had an A rating on fake spot, so that was useful because the last time I bought a headset that had a four and a half star review, the fake spot adjusted grade was F, and it had a one star review because of uh, fake uh, all the fake reviews on it. So, fake spot is a useful tool when you're shopping. We were talking last week when our, we had our, our snafu. Um, we were talking about um, the, the development of characters, which is why I renamed the podcast because we kind of got off topic. But I think it all plays in. Um, so I decided to just kind of merge that together. Um, and um, we're talking about the development of um, characters when you change their circumstances and how that can um, resonate throughout their um their development as a character uh but i was thinking about it and i was thinking about my work on small magic and if those of you who've read my ead for this year it's evil author day um you find it on my dream with um community that i share with jilly uh and um we um i did small magic where harry grew up in the shire with Bilbo baggins and uh there's a moment in where thorin 
uh, admits that he finds the fact that Harry's quite short a little surprising because he's not a hobbit, he's not a dwarf, he shouldn't be as short as he is based on Thorin's experience with humans and wizards. And in the uh, in, in Small Magic, I made him about the height Daniel um, Daniel Radcliffe is in real life, um, about five five, five four, five five, and I did it because um, Harry was distressed to not fit in in the Shire, so his magic tried to make him fit. Of course, he's, he 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 never was going to fit, but his magic tried to make him fit, and so his circumstances changed his physical development because of magic. Now, you couldn't do that with a regular non-magical character, but it's one of the quirks that I put in Small Magic that I found really amusing. And um, when I was putting it together, thinking, you know, how would that go about? And, you know, just explaining how Harry might be smaller. And in Harry Potter, they often play that off to the fact that he's not James Potter's height. Uh, which he does become eventually in canon. He does grow up to be as tall as uh, James Potter was. Um, I believe that could be canon. I'm pretty sure that's canon. But a lot of writers play off Daniel Daniel Radcliffe's height issue as being uh, an issue of malnutrition with the Dursleys. And so Mm -hmm. when I wrote Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond and Harry growing up um, around healers and... um, you know, being um, being in serious care, when he comes to Hogwarts, he's almost six foot, or he is six foot. So um, that played into his development. Um, and th- these are characteristics that when you um, think about your character's history and where they're going to be and how they're going to grow up, um, they can impact a lot about who they are and how they become and what they've become. So it's just something that I've been noodling about all day, you know, noodling about last night before I went to sleep. I really, I felt in small magic. I, I felt like I really was able to really track why, you know, why Harry was different from Canon and why it made sense. And, and that is something that, you know, I think that's important when you're adapting a character that's established to, um, and it, it actually adapting a character to that, that is an established character to a change in their circumstances is, I think, better practice for learning to develop original characters than just sticking to canon and canon characterization. And I don't mean that in any kind of judgmental way, but, you know, if you want to practice characterization and, you know, a lot of people do tr- treat fan fiction as kind of a, you know, aside from um, that one of the aspects of it that is useful for them is it's kind of a training ground. Um, you know, where they can work with established characters. But at some point you have to address, if if you're wanting to write original fiction as well, you have to address the characterization and development of characters. And the practice for that is, you know, evolving a canon character in different circumstances. And a lot of people, I mean, you don't want the changes in the character to be jarring, like nobody can figure it out. And a lot of readers will just, you know, it just floats below the surface of the narrative where they don't even notice it. But for those who are paying more attention and want to understand, you know, it's, 
it's you want to be able to track back why they're different. You know, Harry is different because he didn't, you know, Harry's very confident in small magic and it's really easy to track why he's very confident. Um, he doesn't let people push him around. Um, and it's easy to track why he's, he's different in that regard. And he should be because he grew up completely differently. If he was like Harry Potter in um, canon and with the with the circumstances Kira put him in, it would be weird. Jarring. Yeah, jarring. It would, it would be, be a strange. very jarring read. And I had a, I had a reader comment on something once that they found it usually you and this is this is they found it usually very jarring or something along this line to, to read canon characters not acting like canon characters. And the kind of the implication I took from some other stuff they said is that they wanted canon characters to act like canon characters, even in non-canon circumstances and non-canon backgrounds and in AUs and stuff. And there's a difference, I think, between the character being static um, and just plunking a static character down into different circumstances and making them be the same. Um, versus making it believably capturing the essence of a character. And I I was a little bit I was a little bit perplexed at at how said how jarring she said it was to read characters that were behaving differently in in AU setting because they really should be behaving differently. It doesn't make sense well, that they would be exactly the same. But you don't want them Some people unrecognizable. No, but you you do want to change them because you, you, they have to reflect their circumstances because um, we are a summation of um, experiences and um, environment and emotional and physical responses to stimulus. That's just the human experience. Um, some people box a character well, like they box themselves. And they live a very small life. And they and this is uh, that's probably ugly to say, but it's true. So people live a very small, narrow life. Um, they never travel more than 100 miles from the place that they're born. You know that, right? There are people like that who are on this planet who've never been more than 100 miles from the place of their birth. And those kinds of people live live small, and they have defined characteristics. And there's nothing wrong with that it's 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 a, it would starve me i would be starving if my life was that small but some people are perfectly content to have that and some people need it some people are very comfortable in that space it's it's what they need it's what they prefer and that it's perfectly okay but it does create um situations when um they do encounter things they're not prepared for um, and it doesn't get like if they're if they're online a lot of times the world online is how they broaden themselves and sometimes they don't respond well to way to the way other people interpret characters does that make sense or am I just rambling no I get what you're saying I get what you're saying Okay. Okay. <laughs> I think there's, I think there can also be. It's, I think one of the things that feeds into that is resistance to change. 
it's like, oh yeah, I want to read about you know Tony being a space pirate, but not if it doesn't, not if it's like not like Tony. And it's like, well, if Tony is a space pirate, then he didn't go through all of those circumstances that he went through in canon to make him who he was. Um, so I think I think the the key to adapting a character is figuring out what is what is the heart of them, what is the core of them. Um, somebody had made a comment um, on one of my stories about Tony being very forgiving, um, and they didn't and they didn't say it in a bad way. But I think that's actually one of the things like about Tony Dinozo that is almost undernoticed in in canon is that he is very forgiving. Um, it's not in a kind of you know, gushy way, but kind of basically he, he lets everything go. He rarely holds a grudge. I mean, he gets angry sometimes, but he's not really much of a grudge holder. Um, you know, if he wasn't fundamentally trying to be forgiving, he wouldn't have the angst with his father. He would have just kind of cut him off. Not that I don't think Dinozo Sr. needs to cut off. And I actually think that Ken and Tony is too forgiving. He lets too much stuff go. Um, so, I would. I think that that's actually kind of like at the heart of what that character is, is that he is somebody who is um, got a lot around it. But that like at the core, one of the one of his core traits is that he's a forgiving person. That he doesn't. He's not much of a grudge holder. So to take Tony for me to a place where he does hold grudges. And then he, I don't have a problem with Tony doing the scorched earth thing because he's mad. I don't, that's not what I mean at all. I actually read something recently where Tony goes totally scorched earth and it's awesome. But to take Tony to a place of where he's abusive, from forgiving to abusive because he's angry, is really jarring for me because that's not how I see him. I'm going to need a link for that if I haven't already read it. You read it. Okay. It's not online, though. We weren't trying to be a thick tease there. That that was not the purpose of that. I just wasn't on. I wasn't on her path. But now I'm on her path. We're good. Uh, I. I think sometimes when you um, like, if you look at the physical differences that I um, made with um, John in various AUs and Stargate. Uh, for instance, in, in, um, <clears throat> in uh, what might have been John's uh, got a very, uh, John put a lot of restrictions on him. And one of the ways that I, um, I tried to subtly highlight that is his hair. In what might have been John keeps his hair regulation short. Regu- I mean, to the, to the millimeter short. Um, and Rodney comments on it when he sees Matt's hair, which is ridiculous. And he um, he asked John if his hair would do that sexy sticking up thing if he let his hair grow. And John has put so many restrictions on himself physically in response to what happened in Pegasus and the loss, the brief loss of his humanity when um, he bugged out. And I wanted to kind of, um, I added little details to his physical character to attest to that. His, um, 
his his extreme physical fitness, his regulation short hair, uh, the way he moves in a scene, the way he touches people, how careful he is with McKay. Um, and these are all decisions I made before I started writing. And a lot of times, I mean, I, if, if I'm going to assume that a, the, a large part of my audience has read what might have been, um, things that you necessarily consciously pick up, but I hope that you subconsciously picked up as you were reading, that, that these were just small things about John that's slightly off from the canon representation of him based on how he responded to being in Pegasus um, with uh, people who did not manage Atlantis as well as McKay did in canon. where the city was also his enemy in Pegasus. Um, As much as he loved her, he also feared her because she didn't respond well to their presence to um, handle, you know, John's Air Force and what might have been. He's a Marine and ties that bind. Uh, yeah, it's funny because I would say sometimes I think that my author adapts something. So I would say that I I picked up on the stuff that you were talking about when I read what might have been. My brain interpreted it a little bit differently, um, but not in a bad way. And it's okay it if sometimes your interpretation is a little bit different because your interpretation is based upon your life experiences and how you view certain things, right? So everybody's going to come into it a little bit differently. Um, I talk to some people sometimes who like feel bad when they don't get it the way the author means it. But, you know, the only time that's ever an issue is if you take something really negatively and the author didn't mean it that way and you go out and kind of get mad. But yeah, you're going to, like I perceive John when I read what might have been like I'm, of almost all the Johns that you that you've written, he was like this is going to probably sound more the predator with a polite face, you know. If I feel like this, this he is a predator, predator with, with him. Yeah, I thought yeah, barely absolutely. was predator about him, and I felt like he was the most almost. I think the most predatory, um, but he contained it. So I did feel that containment. I felt like John was a contained predator more so than any other. Even I, I know some people might say that ties that bind John is more predatory, but I, that never was my impression. Um, it so wouldn't I have been my intent very, either. Yeah. So it was, it was, I did get that tight containment. I, um, and I, and I really enjoyed it. I, I like that sort of, you know, um, kind of barely leashed thing and you don't you want to be careful like you don't want him to let it off the leash and that was like my impression of him it's like he was like kind of like always on a little bit on a wire and that Rodney was a, a little bit close to the you know not necessarily the leash holder but maybe but like you know the thing that could really set things off that challenged John's control of the predator inside so um there's a line. Harm to, harm, um, harm to Rodney, rather. 
Right, harm to anybody um, without care, without meaning to. He's um, he's very contained. But there is a line in what might have been where um, David um, and John are talking, and it's when um, the Carson issue is revealed in Pegasus, and they they figure out that there's a Carson Beckett out there in the in the universe that they didn't know about, and it comes out that John had married various people on um, the expedition due to customs on different planets. And then, but then John told David that he never had any relationship with anybody in Pegasus, that he kept himself um, away from that. He didn't allow himself any kind of intimacy in Pegasus. And um, one of the things I was thinking about is how would the expedition have fared without McKay? How would various characters have reacted without McKay there? The thing is, is that when you look at Shepard, as much as John changed Rodney, Rodney changed John. There's a fic out there where um, an author described John Shepard perfectly, that he was walking around Atlantis with a Teflon coating. McKay becomes his best friend in canon out there in Pegasus, he gets past that Teflon coating. But there's no one there to do that for John when McKay is on Earth. Whether you write them as a romantic pairing or just as friends, there's no one quite like McKay on Atlantis who is... who challenges John in a variety of ways and that's missing. And so John out there in Pegasus um, by himself, not allowing any intimacies being turned into a bug, losing all of those people one after another to the city and to altercations off world. It, it was supposed to change him. It was supposed to make him stronger it also, I wanted to reflect a quiet kind of fear of himself and what he was capable of. So I hope that I accomplished that um, in the writing. And these are these are the kind of decisions that I have to make early on in the plotting stage of my character. Um, because like I said, you are a, a summation of your experiences and your responses to those experiences um, your external motivators and how you're internally reacting to these external motivations, or that's who you are. That's your personality is developing as you experience life. And so John had to, I don't know, I just put a character through things that he didn't experience in canon and expect him to come home all laid back. If you remove an element. And McKay is a huge element in the Stargate universe. And he's especially huge in Atlantis. Um, And removing him from the expedition had serious, serious ripples. And so I wanted that to um, kind of resonate throughout the entire series. And, and, and I hope that I accomplished that. 
Okay, I can't you always tell. I mean, <laughs> I think you definitely, I think you definitely accomplished it. Um, the because like even if you send somebody competent, you know, who really can handle the city, um, out there, the who and the how they interact with John really alters things. I mean, imagine if if Sam Carter went on the mission originally instead of McKay. Um, she, I don't think she and John would actually work well together. I don't think, now I don't mean like they would have a bad working relationship, but I don't think they would get each other's humor. I think Sam would get more serious. She's already pretty serious um, in canon. Um, I don't think she would deal well with, with um, from a military perspective with uh, the way John is. And I think that having another military person in, and I think she would have become the ranking military officer once what's his face died, not John. So it would change the whole dynamic. So even if he didn't have the obstacles that he had in what might have been, it, you send somebody out there who's super competent and who can handle the city, John is still going to come out of that experience very differently than he did in canon because he's going to evolve in that year out there. Um, so it's it's a little bit you know you, it, there's there's any change you make you can make changes that affect it almost in a kind of a a, a, a neutral way but if there's going to be where meaning where John's character doesn't harden or soften in any appreciable way but um, I don't think that you can expect change a dynamic like what Kira said where you have somebody who is as important to um, John as Rodney was in, in canon with them becoming best friends. And they kind of kept each other, they, they kind of like revealed and, and protected each other's soft spots so that they didn't get too hard out there from the things they went through. Mm-hmm. So it's important to just remember that any change that is significant to that character and what, and it, so the, the city might have done well under Sam you might have had this almost the same casualties under Sam, but John wasn't going to be the same when he came back. It, it just isn't possible because Rodney's position and Rodney himself was too important in John's development over that first year. At least that's my perspective on sending somebody like Sam out there with John. I don't know that I think Sam and John would be super smooth together, at least not the way I perceive them. Um, I think John and and, um, Jack O'Neill would probably work well together. Um, But I could picture Shepard and Carter having some really angry sex. (laughs) We survived. Let's talk. That's some serious grudge sex right there, and I totally see it. I totally see it. Because John's got a temper and it simmers underneath his skin. And I don't, I do think um, that early on in the expedition, if Carter had been put in charge, um, that he and, um, number one, Weir would have gone off the rails. I don't believe for a moment that she could have tolerated Carter in charge of the military. I think Carter would have taken control of the expedition immediately. I don't I think she'd have let Weir stay in charge. The minute the minute the minute Weir 
prevaricated about going to get their people who'd been captured by the Rays, I think Carter would have. You're done. Said, that's it. You're out. Done. Well, the thing is, is that per the expedition charter, at that point, John or Sumner should have taken control of the expedition. Yes, they should have. From that moment forward, they were in and remained in a combat situation. They were in constant danger of being invaded by the Janai, by the race. They met hostility on planet after planet. She had no business being in charge. You're welcome, Dart. Enjoy your pot, Bunny. <laughs> you are welcome. But how does that change everything? How does it change? Because, see, Carter has a lot of experience off-world. And if she is, um, if she allows Weir to remain the de facto leader of the expedition and she's out in the field, how does that change their interactions with the Janai? Carter being Carter, Carter being the person who um, rigged an explosive and blew up a super soldier. <laughs> Carter, yeah, being I don't. A I, supernova I think, with a Stargate. I, I think the thing with Carter goes. I think the thing with the Janai goes down way differently. Whether Carter is out in the field in John's position, or whether she is in charge of the expedition in in Weir's position, because the minute they come back asking for explosives to trade with the Janai, she's going to be like, huh, really? <laughs> Let's talk about this. I think I need to meet these people. Let's just see what this is because I'm not on board with this. This is probably not good. My, experience, not good. my experience over the last, like, you know, eight years is that this is not a good request because Carter, if Carter had been on the expedition, like Kira pointed out, she had a fuck ton of off-world experience that almost nobody who went on that expedition had. They basically sent a bunch of people out to Pegasus who were completely ill-equipped to handle what they found. Knowing that they would have to deal with off-world stuff, knowing that they would have to do those things, they sent the, the third highest ranking uh, military officer was a lieutenant. They sent a Which bunch of kids. Which is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. They sent John, who basically they were taking him for his gene. He wasn't, a, you know, in Canada, I don't think he was a considered a really serious, you know, military asset. Um, they sent a bunch of kids and um, and a, an experienced military commander, who I don't, I don't remember, I don't even know what his level of off-world experience was. And they sent Weir, who also didn't have a lot of off-world experience. And so if you send somebody out there like Carter, whether she's in the position of leader of the military or a position of leader of the expedition, and it would be one of the two because she outranked John, um, it's going to dramatically change the dynamic because she's going to understand things about what happened, what's happening, and what's, you know, that, that Weir didn't get that John eventually learned through experience, but that experience would come up front. And I think Carter being on the expedition from the get-go would dramatically change everything. Sorry, I was chewing. 
Um, it would. And, and so, when you're rearranging your universe, when you're writing in an alternate universe, when you're making big sweeping changes to um, your character's circumstances, you need to keep that in mind, how it changes their development, how it changes their interactions with other people, um, how it can alter canon events. Um, One of the things that I did in um, Hold My Coffee uh, is when they arrive on Atlantis, they meet the alternate version of McKay, who in canon, Elizabeth is the one who stayed on Atlantis and saved the city for the expedition after the time travel accident. Well, it held my copy. I had McKay do it because that just made more sense to me based on the characters that I had um, maneuvered into place. Uh, and um, old Weir waited. She just waited in the pod until someone found her. But I knew I knew that McKay would be very aware of when the expedition was supposed to arrive. And I also knew that she would not in a million years want to wait even unconscious she would not want to wait she would want to make sure that they were okay and she would want to see john again because she didn't she wouldn't want to risk dying in the pod before they found her whereas oh weir didn't care she'd done her job but that's not how mckay works and so McKay got her ass out of that pod well the ai woke her up because that's what the ai had been taught had been programmed to do was that when the expedition arrived, the pod was supposed to be activated and um, McKay was supposed to be woken up. And McKay, and someone asked me and um, had emailed me and asked me why McKay didn't live as long as Weir did in the episode. Well, old Weir was taken out of the pod, put in a bed, and kept in a hospital bed by the expedition. Whereas the alternate version of McKay got out of the pod by herself and made her way back, made her way up to the expedition to see John. She basically used what she had left to get there. And and that made all the difference. She taxed her heart to get to him in, the, in, her, in her final moment so that she could see that he was okay. And then the alternate version of her was going to live. And then she died. And it was very difficult to write, I have to say. <laughs> I, was, I, I didn't expect it to be that difficult because you killed McKay your uniform. There, right? What are you talking about? <laughs> no, you killed your It doesn't yeah, matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it was really painful to write. I cried. I ugly cried when I it's wrote sort of, it. Um, it's sort of like you kill your unicorn <laughs> and you do time travel and you make it better. You still cry when you kill your unicorn. It's just the way yeah, it goes. But, but, I felt like it was really powerful. I, I felt like it really spoke to who Meredith is. And I wanted to, um, for what I have plot, plotted next, I needed to um, show the other, the other members of the expedition who Meredith is. Because John already sees her. John already knows exactly what Meredith is. But there were people on the expedition who didn't, who didn't know. And now they do. But she had the fortitude to do what she did. And it, you know, anyways, it's, <laughs> I'll make myself cry <laughs> talking about it. But it was important to, 
to um because in canon you see these moments where McKay um reveals himself to be um stupidly brave and heroic yeah in the overwhelming fear um you've seen him go into situations where he's like yep I'm gonna die <laughs> I'm gonna go do it anyway <laughs> I'm gonna do this I'm gonna die you <laughs> know shit shit I'm gonna die I'll get my Nobel Prize yet and I'm gonna die I'm gonna do it. it but you know you see this episode after episode where McKay is overcoming his fear um to act in very heroic ways and I wanted to um Meredith is a lot softer than, than Rodney and so but her core is still the same her core is and the thing is is where McKay allowed himself to display um fear he wasn't afraid to tell anybody he was scared of something he he will not tell but demonstrate he had no problems demonstrating his fear Meredith can't afford that. And as a woman, pretty obvious that, you know, when you're, when you're moving around in circles that Meredith's working in, um, demonstrating a weakness as a woman is a lot more dangerous in some respects and in some situations. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's different. You can't just change somebody's gender and expect that everything's going to fall out the same. Not just because, not just from the character perspective, but, you know, um, even if you manage to somehow, you know, make it realistic that they have the exact same life circumstances as a different gender, um, society is just different for men and women. They experience the world differently because of the way the world is towards them. So, expecting exact that for me is, is really jarring in a, in a gender bent um, story is when the character is a different gender and behaves exactly the same way. Um, and I read somebody said, I don't remember who said this. Somebody said once is that you don't write a great female character. You just write a great character and then make the character a woman. And that work maybe works from the outset. Maybe it depends upon, you know, the backstory and stuff. Um, but once you've got a character and a great character established in the gender and you've built everything up and you've made something consistent and you just can't switch it. I mean, it sounds, it sounds right when you hear it. You just take a great character and then you make them a woman. But there's a little bit more to it. But that's a man's that. advice. Yeah, it is a man's advice. And that's spoken from a place of pure, and I know my, I have a very large male audience, um, 65% of you, actually, I'm going to say it anyway, that comes from a place of dick privilege. That comes from a place where you've never in your life walked out into a parking lot in the middle of the night at the grocery store with your keys tucked between your fingers to use as a weapon. A person who's never in their life parked beside a van and not gotten a little dig of fear in their stomach. Yeah. Because being a woman in today's society is fundamentally different than being a man. There is absolutely, you just, 
you can't write a great character and then make them a woman because a woman's experiences are so profoundly different. Yeah, because if you I take remember, a character and if you start with if you kind of reverse engineer, because we were talking about reverse, almost reverse engineering a character. If if you were to take a character and a male and a female character that kind of acted exactly the same, and you reverse engineer their life, their lives of necessity are going to look different. They cannot have the same life experience and come out that way because gender makes a difference. And um, you can't just start with the end game. And if you do start with, like, the end game in terms of traits where I'm developing this character to fit the plot, then you still have to reverse engineer it back to a backstory that makes sense, that they would be that way, that they would be the way they are. And the funny thing is that particular advice, the... the, um, I think I remember the characters in question I found to be rather two-dimensional. Um, the women characters be rather two-dimensional. So it was kind of, not always, but... Um, yeah, it, it's it's frustrating from a characterization perspective to think that you can just slap-dash it together. And like I said, the, the advice, that advice of make a great character and then make them a woman... It sounds like you're kind of going, well, that sounds right, but it made me head tilt the first time I heard it. Because I'm like, well, it's a little bit, hmm. Really? Not quite. Is that the way that works? That's the way that works. I remember my my husband and I going to the grocery store. This was about a couple years ago. And um, it was the middle of the night, and I wanted to go to the grocery store. And he said, well, I'll go with you. I said, okay. And we get in the car, and um, I'm driving, and um, we get into the parking lot, and... um, there was a um, parking spot and it was next to this um, work van and I skipped it and he said, well, why why don't you park there? I said, I can't park next to a van. It's too dangerous. He looked at me like I was an alien and I also make a habit of trying to park in a place where the driver's side isn't exposed to another vehicle. My favorite place to park is next to a curb where my driver's side comes out on a curb or next to the cart thing where my driver's side mm-hmm. is on the cart, like next to the cart carousel thing um, because nobody can park there. And I once um, went out to get my groceries and put them in the car. And by the time I got out to my car, there was a uh, minivan parked next to my car on the driver's side and the door was kind of slightly ajar and I turned back in the window store. I, I, I would have to, <laughs> I'd be like, no, and no, this is not I happening. Asked, I asked, um, and it was a Publix and, um, I went back in the front door and the little guy that had bagged my groceries, he said, did you change your mind about needing an escort out? I said, yes. <laughs> I was like, uh, and we get out there, and this kid, he's like eight, seventeen, eighteen, and he said, "Oh," and he went, when he saw the van, he goes, "Yeah, that doesn't look good, does it?" So he worked there a long time no, to, to recognize really the this the situation that I I was just deeply uncomfortable, and uh, he put my groceries in the back of my of my little SUV, and he went around and opened the door for me, the driver's side door. And um, put me in and shut the door. 
and I was like, you know, I was just really thankful. And um, but uh, I, but my husband would never even have thought twice about approaching that situation. It, it never would have crossed his mind that it was a problem. And it probably because wasn't a problem. But women experience the world differently. They just, you know, we, we have different experiences. I mean, a lot of, there are a lot of factors that affect the way you experience the world. Um, and so, and that has to be taken into account with your character, with characterization. It just has to be. You can't just willy-nilly change someone's gender um, and have them be exactly the same. You can't change a character's gender, but you just have to do it thoughtfully. Or not, and then your story's disingenuous. Is that how you say that word? Disingenuous? Yeah. Okay. I don't always know for certain. But a lot of times I learn words by reading them and not by actually hearing them. Um, And, uh, but, when you look at McKay and Meredith, Meredith keeps her temper a little better than McKay because McKay has never yelled at someone in an academic setting and worried that they might hit him or if they did hit him that he wouldn't be able to handle it so he's allowed himself to be extra hostile and he's not afraid to call somebody an idiot yeah whereas Meredith has to weigh it Mm mm-hmm well, it's it's basically a fact that you have to be nicer as a woman than in the same situation that a woman does. Because if a man um, were to say a certain thing, like aggressively perhaps, um, he would be considered assertive. A woman in the same situation would be considered a bitch. So assertive is a positive quality. Bitch is a negative quality. And it's strictly, you can be the same words in the same exact tone, and most people will have that perception. So odds are, um, you know, odds are that that a woman, when you're when you're gender bending, a woman who, a, a man who is very aggressive, or very sassy or something, is it, or snarky, not sassy but snarky, um, is that they're probably going to be a little bit softer than than their male counterpart because they've had to learn to be. They didn't get called a bitch all the time. Unless you're writing your character being called a bitch all the time. That could be too. (laughs) But But most people who survive in a professional capacity learn how to temper um, certain behaviors so that they aren't unfairly treated because of their gender. When I'm creating an original character, I um, especially, you know, the thing is, is that in fandom, I often create a character to fit my situation. Whereas in original fiction, I often plot around my character. But when you're in fandom, when you're 
you know, you're shipping up a, a universe, you're altering things, you create characters to fit your circumstances. To fit into the spots in canon where you don't have a canon character that, that works for you, that you don't want to alter. So, but for, an, but for me, when it comes to original fiction, my characters come first. And I might have a general plot idea, um, but I go into it already knowing who my characters are. Because for me, for me personally, when I'm, especially when, my, when you're working with an original main character, I have a hard time writing my plot without knowing who my character is because your character is going to respond to your external motivations and that's how you get your internal reactions and motivations. So if you don't know how your character is going to respond, then how do you plot? That's just always been my perspective on that issue. I have to take a little break. Oh, okay. She took a break. Okay, okay. <laughs> I just took a little break. Oh, My husband's here. having an allergic reaction to something unexpected. He's having um, hives, and we don't know what it's from, and so um, I just need to check on him because he hasn't texted me in a few minutes. So, okay. Just, I'll be gone in a few minutes. All righty. So, um, one of the things that I do with any original character, um, or even if I, and I, I haven't written Rule 63 very often, but um, I think I've done it twice, but it was the same, it was the same character, is somebody, I think the person who had asked the question for this podcast had asked specifically about casting um, and about, um, if, you know, she'd mentioned that, you know, when she loved, or them, I actually don't know if it's a woman, um, that they loved when sick writers gave a casting cheat sheet because it helped them see and hear the characters. Um, I think when it comes to developing a character as well, it really helps to do that. It is something that that I do with any original character, unless they're like a throwaway character, because there's characters that you don't, they, they barely have any lines on screen. Um, oh, okay, our, our, our questioner is, is in the chat room tonight, so if I get confused by anything, I can, they're, they're there to, to uh, clarify. I definitely, um, with with original fiction uh, or with any kind of original character, cast them around the time I start developing them, and it's not it's not because you know if I if, you know with the, with the book I'm working on on the original novel I'm working on, um, I've cast the characters in that as well, um, just because it helps me visualize them. If you have a good visual of your character, you don't mess up. I mean, I would never say, like, if I cast a character in an original novel as, um, let's say, Chris Pine, I I would never actually say in the book, he looks kind of like Chris Pine. I mean, that's, no, I, I wouldn't actually do that. But it helps me to make sure I always keep that character looking the same way, acting the same way. I can hear their voice in my head, the cadence of their speech. And some of that, well, a lot of that doesn't come through to the audience, but it is about helping me keep the character consistent so that I get their voice in my head. Um, Lady, Lady Hope says she does the same thing because making people up completely from scratch where you don't have any kind of, you know, reference point is super difficult. So that is something that, and I don't know if most authors do it, but I can't imagine that, that they don't. Uh, it seems like it's a, a pretty 
sensible thing to do is to get a, a, a you know have that visual have that that the, the voice in your head um yeah someone in the chat says um that they you know heard read that the human mind can't really make up a human face uh it would be really difficult i mean you could probably make up a face by drawing it but you're still going to be taking reference from somewhere in your head so um Creating an original character is, and it doesn't have to be. I mean, some characters have, like, that one character has an entire notebook of backstory. And, you know, and sometimes you don't need that much, and sometimes you do. But you just need as much as it takes you to understand the essence of who your character is. And if if that includes, and for me it does, a, you know, a picture in in what in the OneNote tab for that character so that I remember what they look like, uh, then the character will have consistency. Character Bibles or character cheat sheet or whatever it is that you call it, um, they're about helping you maintain that character's consistency. Um, and you see TV shows and movies botch, especially TV shows, botch this terribly because usually TV shows are written by a team of writers. And so... Um, each episode is not necessarily written by the same group of writers. And because you can tell they don't maintain a character Bible because they violate the, the character over and over and over and over again. Now, some shows are better about this than others. NCIS is terrible about it. Teen Wolf's terrible about it. I mean, most shows I watch actually are really shitty about maintaining character consistency. Um, they change their age. Tony's age changed, I think, three times or something like that in canon. We have no idea how old he is. There's none. none. Oh, Paul Walker yeah, is so beautiful. It, yeah, he was. <laughs> Sorry, I got distracted. I do. Um, what I, I, say I, about... do have, I do have a hard time casting people who died. <laughs> That's yeah. just my quirk. Otherwise, all Character, my OCs um, would be Heath Ledger. Right? What a. What a beautiful person. Um, yeah. I, uh, what I'll say about character consistency is that it's very important, but it's also important to keep in mind that real people aren't always consistent. Well, that's true. That's true. There are moments when you are absolutely, completely off the rails, irrational. Um, there are moments when... You say things that have never come out of your mouth in a million years. Most of the time you're drunk. Um, so while character consistency is very important for continuity and for um, developing um, your character's uh, foundation for your reader, it's also important to remember that humans are flawed and irrational and sometimes completely inconsistent. To, to who they're to, to who they are, and that can play. So, just FYI. Yeah, it's just I think that you have to with your with your character and and their setting in the story, you have to know when you where the line is. It, you know, because people like Eric said, people do get irrational. I've I've really done some things. Everybody, if if you don't have regrets, I, I have to think that you're probably pretty young. <laughs> it's like give it time. 
Um, I think most people do eventually have regrets. You know, something they said to somebody, something they said in the heat of the moment, something they said because they were drunk, whatever it was. Sometimes we let we say the wrong thing, we act the wrong way, under pressure. We may not behave as gracefully as we would like. Um, but you have to know what, where, how far you can do, where, how far you can go, right? Um, how far you can kind of stretch your character to have them be inconsistent and not go too far. So, like, you know, your, your character, somebody, at the outset, you can't have your hero murder someone. I mean, that's going too far, especially if they're not somebody who would, who's likely to do that kind of thing. I mean, that's an extreme example. But I've, um, I've read stories where, you know, you know, not stories, I was in books, I've read books where, and this was when I was reading more um, romances than I am, you know, the pet romance, traditional like Harlequin style, where the male character who didn't strike me at all as being like that, basically it didn't, you know, they, they, this is the whole, the whole ignoring, ignoring the note thing, the whole rape thing going on in romance. If your character does that, and it, 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 it kind of like for me, that's like a no recovery point. You can't just go, oh well, he was drunk. Okay, so then, and then I want to go, okay, so the book is about somebody else, right? <laughs> because this can't be the main character. He's 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 somebody I can't relate to anymore. So there, you have to decide where the lines are. What, what what's too far? Um, and I think sometimes in shows that they don't think twice about making a character um, go too far. Gibbs repeatedly goes too far. Uh, he is a complete contradiction to himself, uh, and, and it, it's glaring. And he and holds others to an impossible standard. A he doesn't standard hold that he's not to. required to meet. Right. Yeah. He's a hypocrite. He's ugly. And it makes it very difficult as the show goes on, as he, has, he becomes more hypocritical. Um. He's held up as sort of a beacon of morality, and yet his morals are completely compromised. So he's such a contradiction that I don't think that there is a way in canon for, to, to bring that to bring that back. It's, it's taking him too far. Uh, you can't have a character who is an upstanding, um, just like a moral beacon kind of thing, and have them do something that is morally unconscionable. And then have them continue to function as this beacon of morality. There has to be some reconciliation of that dissociation. I mean, it, it is a complete disconnect. And there's a, there's ways to do it. When your character goes way too far and crosses the line, if you're doing that deliberately, maybe your character's in law enforcement and they go, look, i got to let this guy go. I'm going to let this murderer get away with it. And then they leave law enforcement because, you know, they know that they're not, you know, if they're – if they're that morally upright, they know they've compromised themselves to be in that position. But Gibbs, it's not even a matter of letting somebody off. He kills, he lets murderers get away with crap because they were related to him or because he owed them a favor. And that, you know, I don't know. If you let your mother-in-law get away with murder, you just need to hand in your badge. That's just the only way to reconcile going that far. <laughs> you know what though there's there's another way to reconcile that um the 
to keep character consistency, and that is for Gibbs to acknowledge that he's not a good person. That's true. Um, and your character can do fucked up shit if they acknowledge that it's fucked up and they don't care that it's fucked up. And you can keep that character consistency just by doing that. Yeah, I did that, like, and um, I don't care how you feel about it, and I'm fine with it. And also, uh, don't doubt your coworker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Your, char- just saying. your character doesn't have to be um, – Sunshine and Daisies. That's not necessary. Um, Styles is a great character because he's not. And actually, when he's written like Sunshine and Daisies, I like don't get it at all because he's very um, he's very brave. But it's it's. I mean, he lies to his father without a whole lot of remorse. Um, he kind of um, He's willing to take advantage of people and do whatever he has to do to survive the situation. He's kind of got like almost a no limits kind of thing, um, which made the conflict, I think, later in canon. Because I, while I have not watched a lot of the show, I have watched, A, a ton of fan vids, and B, I've read a lot of episode summaries. Um, but Scott is so morally black and white that I thought that was one of the things they did well is eventually pit him and Styles against each other because Styles is not as morally black and white as Scott is. Um, and actually, Scott's moral um, rigidity, it actually um, creates a, a, a moral conundrum for Scott in that um, Scott's kind of position is we don't kill kill anything if we don't have to unless we absolutely have to and have to is defined by scott which means if somebody says i'm sorry they let them go right well you let somebody go who's like killed a bunch of people then they leave your territory and therefore you're satisfied and they go somewhere else and kill a bunch of people well now scott is morally compromised he has just facilitated the murder of a bunch of people so I mean, the show set Scott up to be almost evil in that regard, his whole no-killing thing. It was just kind of very odd to me. We don't kill people if we don't have to, saying that got he and Styles at odds with each other. Um, but Styles really acknowledges that he's – there's this one thing that pops up in a lot of videos where, they're, uh, where Danny's kind of objectifying. He's helping Styles with something because Derek is there and Derek takes his shirt off. And um, – Danny says something like that he's Styles is a horrible person, and Styles just says, "Yeah, but I've learned to live with it." <laughs> well, that's exactly the kind of acknowledgement yeah. you have to do, and we really relate to characters like that because we're all horrible sometimes. Yeah, Dark um, points yeah. out that it's sort of like the whole thing about Batman capturing the Joker over and over again, even though Joker always gets out and he always kills people when he gets out. At some point, is the is it more? Uh, is is it better to just kill somebody who's just going to kill a bunch of people? But, huh, yeah, there is kind of this line that we seem to have with superheroes or or the heroes of any stories that they don't kill people. But heroes sometimes do have to kill people. That's just the way that goes. We'd like it if it didn't have to be that way, but it's certainly not better to just keep sticking 
um, the guy in jail and him get out and kill a bunch of people. And then you capture him and stick him back in jail, then he kills a bunch of people. That's just – that's a, a bizarre cycle. The same I, wrote, letting somebody I have go. a story. <clears throat> I have a story I have not shared. Um, it's a Harry and Hermione story, um, and they um, they're um, from another dimension. And what happens is is that Voldemort and Harry basically destroy the planet they're living on. Um, by the end of it, because of the war, the the blood war, um, only Harry and Hermione are left, and everybody else is a Death Eater, and there are no Muggles. Um, it's just about. 2,000 magical people and Harry and Hermione are literally the only people left who aren't Death Eaters. And Harry calls upon magic to judge Voldemort and his followers. And he sends Hermione to an alternate dimension when he does it. Because Hermione is carrying his, his kid. And so she lands in an alternate universe where Harry died as a baby and James and Lily survived. So here they are. Um, face-to-face with a Hermione Potter and from another dimension. And before she wakes up, James and Lily are talking about it, thinking, you don't think she's your wife, right? <laughs> because they can't figure out what other Potter she could possibly be married to. Um, and um, so when she, when she wakes up, she she tells them that she, she's Harry's wife, and they are um, overwhelmed by her arrival and um, take her in. And, and And Harry does follow her. He, he does follow. Um, and there's a prophecy on their world, too, that, that their, their Harry was supposed to meet. And um, Harry finds their management of Voldemort disgusting. He is disgusted by the ministry's um, catch and let go Death Eater policy. Not let go on purpose, but they get out anyway and they kill a whole bunch of people and you stick them back in um, Azkaban and they go a little bit more crazy and they come back out and they kill a hundred more people. And he finds it infuriating. And he is literally just as, and he's like, you know what? So if you want me to stay here and manage your Death Eater problem, you need to get on board with how I do shit. Because I'm not leaving my wife and my baby in this situation. And we don't got to stay. We're not stuck here. <laughs> and so those characters have to come to grips with a Harry Potter that doesn't believe in taking prisoners and who thinks the only, de- only good Death Eater is a dead Death Eater. And he means it. And he becomes, <clears throat> the ministry offers him a job and he makes them pardon him in advance of any death he might commit, um, um, any murder he might commit on the job. Justifiable or not. <laughs> because he's not mm-hmm. playing. And <clears throat> there's a point where Hermione is talking to their Ron, and Ron calls Harry a dark wizard. Um, and she says that Ron is worse than a dark wizard. He is an enabler. And that leaving his enemies behind to kill other people is horrifying. And she basically implies that he's a coward for not standing up and defending other people by making the hard call that her husband is going to make repeatedly. 
And so it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting take and I, I, I'll almost finish with it. Um, in that Harry's merciless in the defense of the light and of, of magic, especially his wife and unborn child. Right. And it should be. It's the only thing that makes sense. You can't just, I mean, that whole idea of just, you know, stun your enemies, look at them later. Not when you have a reversal spell. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and, it's, and there's many stories in situation in, 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 that I've read in Harry Potter where I thought that they would improve their consistency and characterization a ton by not letting so many people live. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in um, in the Evil Author Day story I posted, um, in my head it is still, I call it the Time to Jesus meeting in my head. I have a hard time remembering its actual title. Um which I didn't call it come to Jesus meetings because um, I didn't want people to, you know, like, like search for Jesus meetings. (laughs) 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 Anyway. (laughs) Oh, react. It's called react. No, it was, it was, was, in that story, there's this moment where Tony, he he doesn't, he isn't going to, he's not at the point that he's going to order someone to shoot somebody in the head, but he gives him the okay to do it, um, which is there's this moment where the Kanama is coming for one of the two groups, and Gerard is the master of the Kanama, and um, they're, you know, Tony wants, he knows that the, that the Kanama is a teenager at that point, and he knows the Kanama is being used against his will, and, that, you know, so he tells his um, subordinate um, if you don't think you can get him without putting our people at risk, you kill. You can kill. You have my authorization to kill Gerard. I'm not going to tell you you have to do it, but you can kill him. And that I don't. I've never read that solution, but it's an eminently practical solution to the problem of the master of the Kanama, is which is what Gerard did. Is you just kill. Um, you kill the guy who's in control of it. Uh, Gerard killed Matt and took control of the Kanama. So. Uh, it was sort of the a canon approach to it, but it wasn't ever the solution anybody thought about with Gerard. Now, if there's anybody who needed a good killing um, in a show, it was Gerard Argent. But they constantly let him go, which I don't understand. Um, Your story's is called React. Story Did up? you already say that? Huh? Your story's called React? I remember if I, Did you already that say that? That is what it's called, yes. I don't remember. That is what it's called. Um, and the title makes more sense in, in the arc of the, the three-part thing. But there's a funny thing about characterizations we're talking about. I think I mentioned this a little bit on one podcast. But I had um, I had plotted that story. And I I knew exactly what Tony's background was on that whole story, you know, that he had reacted really negatively to the whole idea of werewolf hunters when he had found out about it as a teenager. He hadn't wanted to be involved with it, kind of thought it was, you know, kind of morally unconscionable, um, even though he kind of understood the necessity of, like, a secret police force. He he just didn't feel good about it. So he kind of said no to that whole life. Um, And... um, but anyway, so I had plotted. Uh, t- Tony has a lot of um, 
it's not rigidity, but he has a, he has a lot of moral certainty. And it's a case of where even if something is illegal, if it's right, he's going to be okay with it. And if something is, he's not okay with letting the bad guys go, and he's fine with um, shooting Gerard in the head if it means saving a teenager who's being used against as well, if it means saving other people. He would shoot Gerard in the head just to prevent one of his people from getting hurt. So he's not morally rigid. He just has a lot of you know, conviction about what he thinks is right and wrong. And the definition of right and wrong is not black and white. So anyway, so I had written, crafted his character this way where things were a little bit different because he'd had Claudia. Um, he sacrificed NCIS to be supportive of her and to take to be with his sister in, in their last days, her last days. So he's different than in, he's still got the sense of humor, um, but he's different. And my, my, plot was that he was going to get together that the pairing for the series was going to be Tony and Chris Argent and it was almost like I'd had a disconnect when I plotted because I'd made Tony's character and I knew what I knew about Chris and I got to that point in the story where I would have had to have gone down a slightly different path Um, and and all of a sudden I had absolute conviction that there was no way that the Tony I had created would ever get together with Chris Argent because the way Tony perceived Chris was brainwashed for starters, but that in the state that he was in, that he was completely almost morally unredeemable, that Chris, they saw werewolves as a lesser creature. Chris still fundamentally believed at that point in canon that it was better to die than be a werewolf, which is ugly thinking. Stupid. And so I, it's stupid. And so if I had stuck with my plot, I would have completely sacrificed my character because there's no way that Tony would have gotten in a relationship with Chris. It just wouldn't have happened. At the time, the time I did this and I hit that wall, it stumped me. I'm like, well, what am I going to do? And then when I came back to it, I went, yes, I did change my mind. Um, well, when I went back and read it, it was the answer presented itself very simply, which was, I'll just change the pairing. <laughs> and then I was able to write the last little bit of that first novel. Um, Chris, the, and that's the case of character inconsistency in canon, is they really um, they, they really turned a corner with Chris Argent. He was early in season two. I mean, when when I I mean I haven't seen the episodes, but when I read that he and his wife captured and and tortured the school principal, um, who was human, which is against their precious code, uh, so that Gerard could have that job, that was I, I find that pretty irredeemable. So, but they they I think that fans are responding very positively to Chris, and so they did a, a, a pivot on his character late in season two to make him more likable. But at the point that I was positioning um, the story, um, I was still pretty much dealing with brainwashed, unredeemable Chris. So it made my plot plan very improbable. So I fixed it. I mean, to me, that was, to me, Tony getting together with Chris would have been like worse than the plot hole. It would have been, like Tony thinking with his dick, so which was not going to happen when 
the Argent family had been a threat to the person he cared about most in the world, which is Styles. So, yeah, so I hit I hit a big character inconsistency, uh, an inconsistency between characterization and plot, and I had to stop and fix fix it. Well, it took me like two years, but I came back to it and I go, oh, why did I just change the pairing? Gee, that seems so simple now, but two years ago it stalled me on that story completely because I felt like I had plotted badly. There's also there's a there's a different fix. Um, I am totally on board with your pairing fix, by the way. I'm I'm 100 percent on board with that. I'm all in. I'm here for it. <laughs> um, looking forward to it. And that is a tease, and I'm not even mad as upset that I'm doing it to you, listeners. Anyway, another fix would have been to remove Chris Argent from the situation. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have to accept canon events um, when you're rewriting. So what you what she could have done, and I'm not suggesting that she do this, but I'm just like you know just giving you guys a, a reference to how you can fix a problem like this, is if Chris isn't there, was never there. If Chris and say say Chris and his wife divorced, and his wife is fully on board with the hunter with his father, Chris says no. They take Allison, come to Beacon Hills, without Chris. When it all goes to shit, and. Allison is revealed to be a minor. They have to get her father to come to Beacon Hills to deal with her and his father's crimes. That's one way to fix Chris Argent as a character. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in fixing Chris as a character early on and making him more palatable, um, is just to remove him from the crimes that get committed in canon. Yeah, and that I think that if I had if I had seen the and this is the case of if I had seen the plot hole, the characterization inconsistency up front, and I and I was really really wanting that pairing, that would have been a great approach is to take Chris out of the situation. But I didn't see the problem until I ran headlong into it, which is then a case right. where you completely rewrite or do what I ultimately decided to do, and um, change pairing uh, and because there's no romantic tension in the first novella anyway it wasn't like it was a big sacrifice it was more it was more me mentally getting over fucking up but that was and I guess that was an example of you know when you're writing if something feels like wrong because sometimes I usually notice when I'm taking my characters off the rails but um, I would say 10 years ago it was 10, maybe longer ago even. It was pretty common, actually, for me to go down a path and start scratching my head and going, this doesn't feel good. I, I'm stuck. Why am I stuck? And it, it it was more often than not that my character was kind of off the rails, that I had gone a place that I my character really wouldn't have gone to make something happen. I had taken my main character and used them as a plot device, and that doesn't work well. So... It's just something to think about. I'm gonna let the I'm gonna tell I'm gonna be really I'm gonna be super evil. I'm gonna tell the chat room the pairing for the series and um, <laughs> the people on the podcast won't know. <gasps> I'm so That's one of the benefits of being in the chat room. Sometimes you get to hear to see cool things. 
character that was going to play a, a smaller role in the second and third books um, and got him expanding so, him into a, a main character for the book two and book three. Sexy motherfucker incoming. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing <sighs> it needs to be. <laughs> it really does. It's 100%. I am on board the ship. <laughs> it might not be the mothership, but it's close. <laughs> oh, I'm super excited. It's a, it could be a really it big ship the, for me, yeah. It could be the battleship. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's the USS Missouri right there. Um So it's um sometimes and sometimes a characterization misstep, it depends upon I think it actually depends upon your focus as a writer because, and, and there's no good right or wrong about this. Some characters are more plot focused, not characters, some writers are more plot focused, some are more character focused. Um, but for somebody who's super plot focused, if you get a plot hole, um, it would, it, it could like really throw you more than someone who's character focused. And actually, I there was a point, I was so character focused early in my writing that I <laughs> completely miss bottles. I would just write them into the story and miss it. I'm much better about that now. Um, what but, I would um, say is that whether you're character focused or you're plot focused, it's important to keep in mind that your character must influence your plot and your plot must influence your character. Right. They're not separate. They're not separate entities. And the thing about, so as a char- if you're character focused, writer or more character focused like which I am um, I've, I've learned to become more plot focused uh, to try to balance that out because balance is important but what I will I will not thaw out over plot problems if I have a plot problem I just I just you know get my bitches on the phone and say okay we got to talk this out because for me <laughs> talking out a problem um, helps me solve it faster because sometimes I can be stuck on it in my head for days, and I'll talk about it for 10 minutes and solve it. So plot problem, I would just go and um, deal with it. But when I saw it on a characterization problem, it can, it can block me like nothing else. It's like I've fucked up my character, what I do. And it can feel insurmountable. It isn't. It isn't insurmountable. Uh, but it can feel monumental in a way that it isn't. And that, for me, is where distance comes in. I take a break from it, I come back, and I come back with fresh eyes because that character is like my baby in that moment, and I feel like I failed my baby, and it's just it's, I take it really personally. So um, I think it's good to be aware because, you know, don't let yourself stall out. If you're stalled on something for whatever reason and you can't sort it, give yourself permission to, to, to take a break. Um. Yeah, that's the one, Kira. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. I might even use that. I might even use that as my casting picture. Um, yeah, I'm saving that for no reason at all right now. I'm just saving it. Just because. Just because. <laughs> but you know, let yourself let yourself uh, 
let yourself have distance from it. I've I've talked to a lot of people who will just, you know, stop stop writing completely when they stall out. Uh, you know, give yourself permission to take a break from something that you've gotten too emotionally wrapped up about and try something else. Try in in the case of that story, I tried like a bunch of other stuff before I came back to that one. Um, honestly, because I had fanned it was I I had I had so overinflated the problem with that story that um, one of my last drafts, because it, my drafts had all been titled Come to Jesus Meeting, except the last draft, which the last draft I titled, I think I titled it What the Fuck Was I Thinking? Which <laughs> was a little bit negative. <laughs> so I go back for a little reread and I go, what the fuck was I thinking? And so I'm expecting, I go in with the expectation that it's horrible. And then I kind of head tilt over it and going, this isn't horrible. Huh. I did want yeah, to say I get, that I have I created, really, I, I've created, created, created a what? new, um, I created a new uh, section in the bar of the workshop for uh, people who need additional help with Brit picking or American picking or your math, your science, whatever you, you have going on in your pick and you need um, a more expert eye on it, it's called Nitpickers Not So Anonymous. <laughs> so you can so, go over there and talk it out to somebody and get, and, and get, yeah. and get your questions answered. You could even advertise your nitpicking. If you know that you'd be an excellent Brit picker, put up a post and say, I, I can Brit pick with the best of them. And then people can say, Brit pick me, Brit pick me. And you, you might need character nitpicking. That's something you could do, too, um, is you need somebody maybe who's more. Cause it is, I would say it's not uncommon for um, people to write in fandoms they don't know very well. And that maybe they know Fanon more than they know Canon, or uh, that they haven't seen enough of a show or a movie, or they've only seen it once, or they need to, or they've only seen like the movie adaptations and they don't know the comic book backstories. Um, you could go and say, "I need some help with nitpicking," you know, the details of this character. There is somebody who wants to nitpick with you. It's like fandom's second biggest hobby. <laughs> I was eating a cracker. I'll tell you something. Eating a cracker with two headphones on Very is loud. quite an auditory experience. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I wonder how loud that would be if my microphone was on. <clears throat> loud. Oh, hey, type. L- l- let me hear if you can type, if, if, I, if I can hear you typing. Oh, you want me to type? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Loud like lady holder. <laughs> Oh, you mean type loud. <laughs> I can't hear you at all. Well, there you go. <laughs> that, I mean, I was typing so hard when I typed that line that I, I actually, if I type like that on a regular basis, I would break my keyboard. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a loud typer. I feel like I failed the the loud typing test. 
<laughs> well, it does have noise canceling on it, so I was just curious as to um, how well that actually worked. So, must have worked somewhat. Although the thing is with these double the double head muffs that the the ear muffs that I'm wearing, I can't even hear my hair myself typing. So right, um, I I'm just judging by how hard I'm smacking the keys. That's what it is. You know, I if I did that, my nails would kill me. They they would hurt so bad. And she I has lady really long nails. Lady Holder has really yeah. long nails. At least, at least to my estimation. I mean, I know that there are women who have you know inch or two long tips. Um, oh, I just that kind of I get a very very strong visceral reaction to that. Like, oh, um, I'm I'm too clumsy. I, I could never touch myself anywhere. I would be bleeding all the time. I normally have acrylics. I don't currently. Um, so, I'm giving my nails a break. You have to do that sometimes with acrylics. What's really curious is that before, like, decades ago, because I've worn acrylics off and on for for since I was in my 20s, um, and um, I had a hard time growing nails. What I've noticed over the last six months is I no longer have that problem. I have to clip my nails because they'll be as long as the nails I wore false. Because I've always needed an active length, not a very long length. Um, but I can actually grow an active length without acrylic now. Wow. I know. I guess the excessive amount of calcium I've got in my body is good for something. Mine are flexible, and um, I've had more issues with uh, tears than I have brittle. But if I put a a hard top coat on it, I wouldn't need acrylic nails. I just can't be fucked to do that. <laughs> That's a hell of a shit. A, I'm having a a, a nail rebellion. <laughs> <clears throat> I regret nothing. Nails are expensive. Nothing, nothing at all. I noticed that too. So the person who started, money for from? Oh, I'm not spending on nails. So the person who asked the question that this podcast is based on um, is in the chat room. So uh, if, if, if they have a specific question in addition to what we've already talked about, um, we've got like 25 minutes still, so they could ask their question. Lady Holder has beautiful nails. They actually have a giant question on my website that um, we'll be doing more than one topic on. (laughs) But if you have questions specifically about this topic, not your other questions from your comment, your novel, (laughs) your novella. (laughs) But You said earlier talking about writing original characters and um, casting actors to play the parts uh, to give yourself visual reference. And I um, have worked with a lot of of um, professional uh, writers who have never gone near fan fiction who who cast um, 
a role in their head, even if they never actually like gather up a file and put the picture in the file, you know, because in OneNote, I'll have a whole character profile with a picture and, you know, description and education and all that stuff. Um, but even if they don't do that, they'll be like, um, he kind of looks like Tom Cruise. <laughs> so there's always, there's always in the back of their mind, they've, they've um, visually put somebody in that role. Um, whether whether it be an actor or a model or a singer or sometimes sometimes somebody they saw at Target. <laughs> There's this guy that works at Target. He's beautiful. He's my main character. <laughs> In my head, yeah, yeah. There's a um um. Oh, I did an original character in a story. Somebody asked me, and actually in my head, it was this guy I worked with like 20 years ago is, is who this character was. He and his, um, I cast he and his wife, actually, both of them, in my, mentally in my head. And I knew both of them. So it was really easy to write these characters visually based on those two. And then people asked me, what do these guy, people look like? And I was like, oh. Uh, so I had to go find a close approximation. And like, and like the actors I cast don't resonate in my head at all, <laughs> but I was trying to give people a visual, uh, but it was just it was weird. Um, so there was, and speaking of a funny little story about the casting thing, um, there was there's this, this uh, a WordPress blog called Sorry Watch that sort of analyzes um, public apologies that are made by from a variety of sources for a variety of reasons. You know, they that thing tagged everything from science to politics to actors to books to writing, whatever. And it's not like they find every sorry ever, but they um, kind of pick apart, like, public apologies, and this is what's good about them and this is what's bad about them. And I, I've read a few of, uh, you know, I follow them and I've seen a few of their things. And um, they had done a post earlier this year uh, about um, a comedian who had kind of publicly slammed or, or used basically used a book he had seen that he didn't read just by the cover that he had, he had seen this book on the shelf and he'd made jokes about it publicly. And it was a romance book. And basically it was because it was romance was the, 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 the feel for his, uh, his uh, snark about it. And people had kind of, you know, called him on the carpet about, about doing this. And, um, he, uh, he realized that he had been kind of insensitive. So he posts on Twitter, you know, an apology that says, and actually this is an example they're talking about, oh, my God, a celebrity has given a good apology, and we're going to break down for you why this is a good apology. And he had apologized on Twitter and said, you know, I'm really sorry. It wasn't my intention. He was kind of funny about it, but he said it wasn't my intention. He said, and, and you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make amends by I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read this book I, because I judged it. I judged the book by its cover and I made jokes about it. And so now I'm going to go read it. And so then he tweets again and he says, basically, um, I, uh, I realize that this is the second book in a series. And I feel like what I really should do, you know, is read the first book in the series. So I'm going to go read the first book in the series. So I bought the first book in the series. And, and then he live tweets his reactions as he's reading the book. Um, and he gets really invested in it. He starts hating one character and loving another one. He's really all up in this romance novel. And he's, like, really, you know, getting fed. He's, like, the sexual tension was killing him. And um, <laughs> and, and then he fan casts the two main characters, which I thought was 
<laughs> he tweets. He goes, "This is who I'm seeing as these characters," and he's got like a he put you know he obviously took pictures off the internet and then wrote on his phone the character name on top of the actor and he tweeted it, and um, and then he when he gets done he talks about you know. He used the eggplant emoji and the donut emoji. And he goes, well, finally, the you know, eggplant emoji has met the donut emoji. And anyway, it was, he was very funny about the whole thing, and there were a lot of tweets. And But the fan casting, because even like, this is the point of where he knew nothing about these characters other than what he had read, and he created, he, in his mind, he, he fan cast them. And then he, you know, you know finished out the story, he did – you know, tell the author, he tweeted the author directly, um, you know, this this was great. I'm really sorry that I judged your book by its cover. I was really entertained. I'll read more of your stuff. Um, and then she tweeted back that she really appreciated, you know, how he'd handled the situation with so much style and that he had picked up a new fan. So it was, it was really an interesting um, little tale. But the part that I just thought was so charming was it was clear he was into the book because – when you're that into it, that's what you do. You fan cast, and he had fan cast this lady's book, and it was really cute and very sweet. And uh, I'll give you the link to the article. I do have it linked because I was reading it earlier. <laughs> but apparently, I have. Uh, um, looked at so much stuff on Amazon that it's no longer in my recent history. You put it in our chat. I did. Um, and that's actually where I just went and got it from. <laughs> anyway, the sorry, the, the deconstruction of his apology and why it was a good apology is, is interesting on its own, but I just was really charmed by... Um, the fan casting, the whole, the fan casting, and the and the way he reacted to the book. Because when you get into a book, you know, and he was clearly into it. Uh, when you get into a book, that's you do try to get that visual, and you do start to see it in your head. And even if the author gives you no description, based on character traits, you'll start to develop a picture based upon your own life experience. So, you know, if your character is really sassy and kind of um, snarky or whatever, you might develop it based upon, you might start to visualize in your head a person you've known like that or a character you've seen like that. Um, even if the author gives no description, you'll start to de- develop a picture based upon traits. And I think that we all we all do that. It's natural. It's just a good thing. It shows that people are really engaged. Uh also, archetypes, and there are plenty of archetypes um, in fiction that um, you kind of latch on to. Uh, yeah. I've, I've like, if you never... look at the archetypes of Sherlock in the Sherlock series, he's kind of a sarcastic bastard. House is kind of a sarcastic bastard. And McKay is kind of a sarcastic bastard. Do you see? Mm-hmm. But they're not actually the same character. They just all have that sarcastic bastard twitch about them that will make you associate. 
and you and you will and in, in the lack of other other information you will associate and even if the author says this person is blonde and has green eyes and is five foot two um and the person you knew was uh you know six feet tall and a brunette you your association with that with that personality may be stronger than what the author is writing um and that's okay you know but it's just it's such a it's such a human thing it's such a typical thing it's such a fan thing to do when we see something when we read something we enjoy to go and um fan cast i haven't i don't think i've ever had anybody um um argue with me about my casting choices um not argue with me i've had i've had people assume um, who developed their their own fan cast in um, something that I had not posted my own cast for, and they were a little put off by my casting. But they didn't argue with me. They were just, it was not what they wanted or what they expected. Yeah, I mean, I can, I still see, like, you know, Kira, Patrick Shepard is not an original character, but we don't ever see him in, in Stargate that I know of. Uh, so, you know, my, my headcanon around Patrick really developed around um, Viggo Mortensen, Kira's cast for him. So when people cast someone other than, which they certainly can do because how they perceive Patrick is, you know, they have to cast somebody that works for them. But because my own headcanon is, is Viggo, it's, it is a little bit jarring when your head cannon when somebody caps somebody that's outside your head cannon. Um, <laughs> that's just but in terms of somebody just going with a completely original character because uh, usually I I do um, put put up the cast of every. The funny thing is I had somebody ask me. Um, I had a very, pretty significant character in Emergence that I didn't. I actually. I actually did fan cast them in my head. I don't know why I didn't put them on the pan, on the cast page. Uh, and they, they wrote me, and it's like it was their favorite pairing was this minor pairing or, or pairing they really liked a lot. Um, and they really wanted to know who who I had cast in that role. And I told them because, I mean, I, I it, you know, there was no reason not to, but it kind of then got me wondering, like, if this is if this minor pairing is something they really enjoyed, did my fan my my casting for that character, who's an original character, totally ruin it for them? I really have no idea. And I thought about it after I answered, like, was that a good idea? I don't know. It might have been. It might not have been. Yeah, I see Pat, Patrick Stewart, who I cast as Arcturus Black, and that's just I can't get that out of my head. So, although Arcturus Black in the story I'm doing in um. April, he's he's young. He's like in his twenties in in that story. So I uh, I can't do Patrick Stewart with hair. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> he's in my head a certain way, but I can't do it with hair. Um, but yeah, there there have been times I've really enjoyed an alternate casting from my own head cannon. Um, but yeah, I've never I've never had anybody with an original character say, "Oh God, that was a really bad idea." I changed the casting for Declan Frost um, between what might have been and Sentinels of Atlantis, and people were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Why did you do this?" I've got a very good reason. You do see what it is. 
when I did what might have been, I cast Michael Weatherly as Declan Frost because I was at a point in um, my fandom development where I was um, seriously not on board with um, Gibbs Dinozo. And even now, I have to basically rewrite their entire history to get on board with it. And I, um, uh, so I thought, okay, I'm never going to write NCIS. So I might as well bring Michael Welly over so I can play with him because he's pretty. So I made him Declan Frost. Now, the problem is, and it's in Sentinels of Atlantis, um, Tony Denozo is Patrick uh, Shepard's nephew through his sister. Um, Patrick and uh, Tony's mother are brother and sister. So um, when uh, the um, no, no, Patrick's wife is the sister of Tony's mother. That's what it is. I was like, that's not working in my head. What have I done wrong? I've, I've gone off the rails. Um, so Tony is his nephew through marriage. And Tony comes online as a sentinel. And I thought, well, shit, I've already introduced Declan Frost. What am I going to do? So I recast him. And people were like, whoa, what are you doing? Oh, my God, stop. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> I have a head cannon. You've just wrecked it. What are you doing? Although... I I got I got on board with the new casting really quick because I really liked the new casting. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. People got on board with it, but they were like, "Well, what have you done? What have you done? What have you done?" I'm, I'm not prepared for that. Um, so it was really interesting. But it was more like they were questioning, like I had altered reality without their permission, and they were like, they, they didn't know what to do with it more than they were actually arguing with me. They were just surprised. And I didn't even announce it. I just put it on the cast page and waited for somebody to respond. It didn't take long. <laughs> like yeah. a day. Sometimes, sometimes it's surprising. You can do an update to. I did an update to the cast page one day, and somebody noticed within. It wasn't. It wasn't a recent story, and somebody people noticed within a couple of days. And I was like, "Who just goes and looks at my cast page?" <laughs> it's very odd, but you know, good on them for being super observant. I like Patrick Stewart bald, I have to admit. I, I prefer him bald. <clears throat> I, I, yeah, I need to let him do, do him. Yeah, he needs to do him. Bald is beautiful. <laughs> Go be bald. My husband is fine, by the way. He's just miserable and itchy. Um, we don't know if he's having a reaction to oranges, which would be terrible because that's citrus, and you know how citrus allergies are. Um or his lotion. He got a new lotion. And so um, those are the only things, because he's not, he's not really a big orange eater until recently. Um, and we're wondering if he's just having a delayed reaction to it um, or if it's the lotion. And if it's the lotion, it's probably the tapioca powder in the lotion, which comes from a plant, which is also a, a cross allergy with latex. Mm. This could be an indication that he's developing a latex allergy. So, um, but he's just miserable, um, rash, hives. Um, so I'm thinking it's probably his lotion, which is not good because that the tapioca powder comes from this root vegetable, um, and that root vegetable allergy is also closely related to a latex allergy. So, um, 
we're good. We're, we're going to get him tested. Obviously, we're not going to hit and miss with it, but because I don't want to have him have a latex allergy and we not know about it. So we're going to. Yeah, because latex allergies can actually, really escalate. Right. I prefer it be latex and citrus because you'd be surprised how much citrus is in everything you eat. Yeah, and, and the medical profession is where you mostly run into latex, and they're really adept at handling people with latex yeah, allergies latex. now. They put a they put a big sign on your bed that says latex allergy, you know. Yeah. Put a yellow bander on your wrist. It's not it's, it's, it's not nearly as life changing as a as a, as a citrus allergy is because you would not believe you would not believe the food that citrus ends up in. It is amazing. Yeah, it's in everything. Yeah. Um, I had I posted on Facebook earlier that I I get this bottled tea usually for taking out places, and um, and I, and I drink, drink unsweetened tea. So and I was I'm I'm out of like brewed tea, so I was feeling lazy and I just went and grabbed the bottle of tea, and um, their their lab, their their difference on their bottles is you know in the store is color. So the labels are all the same, and there's just this little stripe of color which is how I've learned to recognize. And, like, sweetened tea is yellow, and unsweetened tea is, is, is green. And um, I don't remember, they have some other flavors, but mostly I just pay attention to the green. Well, they introduced the mint tea, and the only difference between the unsweetened label and the mint label is a, a color, a, a shade difference. There's, there's a difference in shade between the greens. So when I was at the store, I just grabbed the green bottle and wasn't paying attention, and I'm allergic to mint. So... I take a mouthful of tea and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and um, I posted about it because I wasn't like seriously harmed. I just like my mouth was burning and um, um, it wasn't, I mean, I, I got it out. I didn't actually swallow any of it. I just kind of froze with this mouth, mouthful of mint tea and going, oh, what do I do? But one of the people on, who I'm friends with on Facebook has a severe allergy to mint, like really bad. And she drinks that brand of tea and she drinks the unsweetened. So I just had posted that I was really irritated, and she's like, "I'm really glad I saw this." And I put the picture up of how close those labels are. So, um, yeah, that's I'm super irritated with that. I think that's a Nestle company. I could be wrong though. Yeah, but I was really irritated because I mean, just changing the shade of green is really not a good, especially when you have used color as as the distinction in your labels. I'll just try to strangle somebody. Kara's probably eating a cracker. I was eating a cracker. Um, she was eating a cracker. She wants to get her some non-crunchy snacks now that she's got a very sensitive microphone. <laughs> I know, right? I just didn't want a cracker in your ear, I saw. I just didn't want a cracker in your ear. Okay. She, she had to be in a very trolly mood to um, cracker everybody in their ear. It'd be rough. I could hear this is going boo. It'd be rough to live in. Um, it'd be rough to live in New England and uh, be allergic to seafood, and or be allergic to shellfish. That you'd not want to leave your house. No, really. It's like everywhere you go, there would be. Yeah, lady, lady holder put a, a link up to. Um, uh, uh, you know this this label where the only difference is you you buy by color right so if you want the pomegranate you buy the the pink if you want the sweet and regular tea you buy yellow and 
yeah, the difference between the mint and the unsweetened is is <laughs> subtle shade difference. Uh, it's not good. Kind of, I think they're kind of banking. I think they're kind of banking on the fact that mint allergies are really uncommon. Well, actually, I don't know if they're that uncommon because when my doctor told me that they, I told my doctor that I was allergic. I thought I was allergic to mint, and she didn't even want to test for it because she said nobody's allergic to mint. And then they tested for it, and they had to send it out to a special lab because none of the labs in the area even had the the assay for that that test. And so she sends it out to a special lab, and she goes, "Oh, hey, you're allergic to mint." And I said, "I told you that." And she said, "Well, it's just such an uncommon allergy." I said, "How do you know? You guys never test for it. You can't say it's wow. You never test for it." Right. I mean, that's just really talk about drawing a false conclusion. We never test for this because it's uncommon. Well, <laughs> it may be uncommon because you never test for it. Boom. We're down to a minute and twenty-one seconds. Um, I hope that we have uh, answered part of this question, um, and we're gonna um, we'll, we'll do another podcast on one of your other questions in your comment later. Uh, but um, one thing I, I want to talk about archetypes at some point. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are definitely. If you're gonna, if you're gonna cast, if, if if you're gonna fan cast the hot guy at Target to be your main guy, your your hero and your story, make sure you don't include any personally personal information or personality quirks that are actually his, because that would be bad. You can you can cop his looks for your mental playbook, but don't cop his actual person. You get me? Yeah. You yeah. guys. You guys have a great evening, and we'll probably see you tomorrow. Say good night, Julie. Good night, everyone.